You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 26th of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show, Britain's Parliament defies the Prime Minister to take control of the Brexit process. Can MPs break the impasse and what does Europe and the rest of the world think? My guests Alessio Patalano and Nina Schick will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including... U.S. military forces in the Pacific fear they could be on the verge of a clash with China over Taiwan. Japan, Singapore and South Korea have the world's most powerful passports, according to a new global ranking. What does that say about the world order? And... New York is poised to be the first U.S. city to introduce congestion pricing. Will it be enough to persuade motorists to leave their cars in the garage? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Alessio Catalano, who's a lecturer in war studies at King's College London, and the political commentator Nina Schick. So welcome both of you to the programme. Now, the British Prime Minister Theresa May has been dealt another humiliating blow by Parliament, which has voted to take control of the process to get the UK out of the European Union. While well, MPs backed a plan allowing them to choose the type of Brexit they want in a series of indicative votes, which are scheduled to take place on Wednesday. Mrs May has criticised the process, which she says doesn't guarantee a majority view on any one course of action. Meanwhile, Guy Verhofstadt, the former Belgian Prime Minister and the European Parliament's top Brexit official, said he was, quote, very pleased that MPs has seized control of the situation. Does the rest of the world agree with him? Nina, before we answer that question, let's take a look at this concept of control. Has Parliament really taken control or is it illusory? Well, they've taken control to a certain extent. But I mean, the options that remain on the table are the options that have been on the table ever since she concluded her deal in November. And that is that the UK can either leave with her deal, leave with no deal or have no Brexit. So when they talk about taking control of Brexit, to be very clear... The withdrawal agreement, this is what she's negotiated mm. over the last two the years. The one which the EU approves us as well. Exactly. Mm. So the, this is the deal that's on the table, right? So you have to think of these negotiations as being conducted in two phases. The first bit, which is what's been happening for the last two years, is the terms of withdrawal. And the future trade talks, which are still ahead of us, those are the hard bits. So, th- so this really is, is, is a picnic, really, in some respects, compared to exactly. what lies ahead. <laughs> exactly. This has been a walk in the park. This is meant to be the easy bit, right? So if you're going to leave the European Union, you still have to agree her withdrawal agreement. So I don't know if that's kind of filtered down to a lot of the MPs in Westminster who are now talking about a completely different type of Brexit. What they're talking about is the aspiration for the future direction of travel in the talks that haven't even started yet. But in order to get there, they still need to vote for Theresa May's deal. Mm. And, you know, it might be after an extension of nine months, but it is still going to have to be that or no deal 
or no Brexit. What you what you do find is that there's actually an overlap in terms of perception, because if you talk to most members of the public, they'll tell you, look, this is all because of the politics. That's why we are where we are at the moment. And then you find that sentiment being echoed in Europe, but within the European Parliament itself, because I think I've lost track of the number of times I've heard politicians in the EU say, well, really, it's it's actually very straightforward, but it's being f- f- discussed through the prism of Conservative Party politics, Labour Party politics. That's why you've got the gridlock in the system. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you were an analyst of the European Union and understood the UK's relationship with the European Union and the red lines that Theresa May laid out when she began her negotiations. This was in the the infamous Lancaster House speech. The infamous (laughs) Lancaster House speech, in which she actually committed to a very hard Brexit. You know, she was removing the UK from the customs union and the single market, which are the closest forms of integration, because, you know, the quid pro quo in her mind was to stop the free movement of people and then also to allow the UK to allegedly negotiate, you know, these stunning new free trade deals around the world. Um, So they, if you considered what she laid out as her red lines, and how long the process would be, how it'd be structured. I mean, this was the inevitable outcome. So there's nothing surprising or unpredictable about the content of the deal. And as a matter of fact, the UK has done fairly well, given it's the smaller negotiating partner, given the time constraints, and given, you know, the kind of political difficulties it's under. Mm. So everything else, all the smoke and mirrors, everything is entirely about politics. Mm. And on this... Both parties have just been as bad as one mm, another. They're, they're both culpable, definitely. Certainly in, in terms of how they've responded and, again, the, the friction within their own parties and, of course, when it trickles down to the actual base, their supporters. But in terms of perception, I quoted there in the introduction, Giva Hofstadt, he said, yes, you know, I'm very, very pleased with this. But is that perception that perhaps um, we are en route to breaking the gridlock, is that shared elsewhere in Europe and indeed beyond? How does the rest of the world see this latest chapter in the saga? I think I can pretty confidently say that the rest of the world is looking at Westminster and kind of scratching their head in bemusement. I don't think anyone uh, aside from the ERG and even the ERG, the hard Brexiteers have, uh, you know, don't think this anymore. Nobody sees this as a glorious liberation for Great Britain and an example to follow. Um, I think the rest of the world is just wondering what on earth is going on. Um, In terms of the European Union, they have actually quietly released their no-deal notices, um, which they said they're prepared for. They think that, you know, there's a high possibility that this could all go wrong. I actually think that with Parliament, quote-unquote, taking control, what they have made less likely is the crash-out scenario, the United Kingdom leaving the European Union without a deal. Because mm. certainly nobody benefited on, on that basis, not just the UK, but also the other members of, of the European Union, particularly the Irish Republic. Oh, yeah, that would be a lose-lose scenario. Um, I mean, for the European Union, they would lose, you know, a trading partner that's worth 10% of their overall trade. So they could stomach that a lot easier than the United Kingdom, who would lose their trading partner, which is worth, you know, over half of their trade. Nonetheless, for Ireland, it would be devastating. Mm. It'd be devastating not only economically, but politically, Mm. because at the center of these talks have been the question of the Irish border 
And in the event of a no deal, you know, mm. that certainly would not be resolved. Yeah, the so-called backstop that you're referring to. Let, let's be a bit more personal about this in terms of perception, because look, we've, we've had a sense of the general overview that basically everybody is confused, not just in Europe, but beyond. But how do, how does the rest of the world see Theresa May? Because the perception here is that she's very dogged. A lot of people feel very sorry for her. Tony Blair, the former British Prime Minister, he said he felt quite sorry for her in some ways. It shows in her demeanour, it shows on her face that she's tired, but she's persistent. How does that perception translate elsewhere in the world? Is there admiration for her or pity or does she annoy people? I think that she may induce a lot of pity from people. And I think that as the leader of uh, a country which is still one of the most important and richest countries in the world, you know, that is not the sentiment you want to evoke as the prime minister of the United Kingdom. You don't want pity. You don't want people feeling sorry for you. Um, And I think to a certain extent, I sympathize with her because she is victim almost of circumstances that are so much larger than her. Is that true though? Because some people will say, well, yes, this is a huge situation, but she didn't help it because of the way that she handled it. She didn't actually share the responsibility of finding a solution Mm -hmm. at the beginning of her premiership. She's doing it now, but she's doing it when we've almost run out of road. Yeah, um, and and I agree with that argument to a certain extent. Nonetheless, having worked on the issue of the UK-EU relationship for the past five years... It wouldn't have mattered whoever was prime minister, you know, the kind of baying at the heels of any Tory prime minister to have taken over from David Cameron in 2016 would have been to trigger Article 50 immediately. Let's not forget that Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour uh, leader, was out and about saying that Article 50 needed to be triggered the day after the referendum. Although he's kind of pulling back a bit <laughs> from that now, pulling obviously. Pulling back from that now. <laughs> but nobody had a plan. So it's a fair enough to say in retrospect, you know, how, how how could this have happened without a plan? But to say that, you know, had any other prime minister been in office, that they would have found a plan is quite uh, optimistic revisionist history, I think. Mm. And nonetheless, having said that, she is a terrible prime minister. She is not good at compromise. It sounds like a bit of a contradiction there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. She, she is all of those things. I mean, she is definitely a problem and she's a terrible leader. But... I'm saying that even if you had had Winston Churchill in office, I don't think he could have delivered an outcome that was much different from where Theresa May has landed uh, that, up that's taking That's interesting. Us. Winston Churchill and Theresa May in the same breath. Interesting. <laughs> Nina, you've hogged this subject. No. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a break because we're now going to change location metaphorically speaking, to take a look at US military forces in the Pacific because they claim that China is trying to further its interests in the region by intimidating Taiwan, which it regards as a renegade state. Now, in January, the Chinese President Xi Jinping warned the island's government that any attempt to assert its full independence could be met by armed force, and he urged America not to intervene. Well, tensions were further increased when the US President Donald Trump reportedly gave tacit approval to a Taiwanese request for 60 new F-16 fighter jets, prompting fresh protests from Beijing. Now, Alessio, I know that uh, you're obviously very hot on issues of um, sure. China and Taiwan, etc. But I mean, look, the, the impression that you get huh. is that 
China is extremely confident to raise the stakes in this way. So what's fueling that confidence? And does it perhaps see America as weak and sclerotic under a Trump presidency and therefore it can push things as far as it can? Or it could be very, very frightened and scared like a little child. And in this case, that's why they're shouting out very, very loud. I mean, there's nothing really new about what's going on here. Uh, U.S. military has been raising questions about situation across mm. the Taiwan. But Strait I guess the newness is, is who's in charge of the White House. That's uh, the new element. Uh, I mean, again, that's been there for a while. I mean, remember that the first, one of the first sort of awkward things that happened uh, when uh, Trump was not even president, was president-elect, was that he uh, took a phone call from President Tsai uh, of Taiwan. Um, so, so, so this is a sort of like ongoing long affair in which uh, the key issue at stake um, has to be divided into two different sets of problems. One that has to do with the, the situation in China and the domestic context, political and economic. One in which Xi Jinping has been uh, uh, for quite some time increasing his power, centralizing uh, all functions of states around his persona, but he's, he's only delivering to a very limited extent. And so this has started to raise questions right, left and center. You know, even even the military, the veterans have been protesting in China for the last right, year. Right, so in other words, then, huh? he's, he's, he's taken something out of the Trump playbook. You deflect. Smoke and mirrors Very deflect. Similar. Absolutely, that's exactly right. So I think on one hand, there is that element to take into consideration what we're talking about. Um, his speech in January, how he's posturing, because this is one of the few things over which no Chinese leader can be seen to be weak. On the other hand, you have a Trump administration that's notwithstanding all the sort of rhetoric and the mercurial attitude of the president on most things, insofar as Asia policy is concerned, actually the Trump administration has been quite consistent. It's been stepping up all sorts of actions to contain it, send a very clear message to China that, in a way, is playing against the problems that Xi Jinping already has at home, therefore creating even more of a fertile uh, terrain, if you want, for him to come out very strongly about, hey, no matter what happens, you know, the situation across the streets of Taiwan is a domestic affair of China. Mm. Keep out of it. And let's not forget that the last couple of days, uh, we had the first sort of joint uh, sailing across the Taiwan Strait of both the US Coast Guard cutter and a US Navy vessel um, as a way to further pump up um, sort of American statements in these regards. Mm. But let's take a look at that aviation deal because it has yet to be cleared there are formalities to go through. But could you see Donald Trump pulling back from it because he has given his agreement rather tacitly, but he hasn't actually banged his fist on the table and said, yes, let's go for it? Or do you think that he would actually call China's bluff and sign it if he feels that, you know what, I can actually take the risk because... I'm the one who's quite strong at the moment. He definitely is. I mean, after the, the win that he's got with the Mueller case, in a way, he's, he's provided a new sense of renewed confidence, particularly insofar as the, the... So you've got two things at work here. One is the trade war with China. And everybody was, was thinking that this would come to an end very soon because he was in a weaker position. But now it doesn't have to rush things. He can hold on to his guns and move forward, quite literally in this case. Um, and at the same time, it's the, there's the, the other sort of set of questions about um, foreign arms and sales. Now, when it comes to Taiwan, Congress is as important, if not more important, than the president is, because the, uh, the the country that is going to receive the sales needs to meet certain parameters. And in the past, some sort of red flags had been raised uh, uh, in terms of selling advanced weaponry to countries like Taiwan, where state secrets, because of a number of points of access that the PLA and the Chinese military has, raises all sorts of problems in the United States, particularly right now, where the United States feels the grip of China catching up in terms of 
innovation through, for example, corporate stealing. So, so there is an element there that Congress will pay very close attention to. And I'm, I'm, I would say Trump is an important factor. But I would say the Congress is, is, is an equally important element of this story. One more question before we go to the break. Is America acting as a defender in this region or is it using arms sales as a counter to China's Belt and Road Initiative? China uses commerce with infrastructure. America is using military power. I think it depends very much on where you draw the line and say this is where it all began, uh, in the sense that the foreign arms sales has been one of the key components, providing capabilities to allies, partners and, and people to support in a way that the United States position so far as Asia Pacific is concerned, is a long-standing thing that goes back really from early post-war period with the reconstruction of Japan. So if you if you see the sort of within the broader context, there's nothing new under the sun here. However, you could raise the question that the transactional nature of the president sort of puts that into sort of a different type of context, one in which he might be using this as a bargaining chip. We shall know soon enough. Indeed we will. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, and my guests, Alessio Petalano and Nina Schick. Now, coming up next, Japan, Singapore and South Korea are ranked as having the world's most powerful passports. So what does that tell us about the new global order? For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. Still with me are Alessio Patalano and Nina Schick. Now, Japan, Singapore and South Korea have the world's most powerful passports. That's according to a new global ranking of 184 countries. Germany came in second, while the United Kingdom has moved into fifth place with America in sixth. The ranking, which was produced by the Henley Passport Index, analyzes how many countries a passport holder can enter visa-free or on a visa-on-arrival basis. At the bottom end of the table, the world's least powerful passport is issued by Afghanistan, whose citizens only have access to 30 countries. So really, this I'm going to throw this out to both of you so you can fight amongst yourselves as to who's going to bag the answer to this. But I mean, I'd love to get your reaction to these findings. And really, were you surprised at all? Or did they come in as expected? I, I, I don't think I'm surprised by that at all. Um, I mean, if I think we can all agree that the geopolitics of the world is at an inflection point and the world is changing. Um, and it's long been a kind of conventional wisdom that, you know, the the years ahead will be China's century or Asia's century. And I think that is reflected in this. Furthermore, let's not forget that kind of the big Western liberal democratic countries, I'm thinking about in specific the United States and the United Kingdom, who've always kind of stood for liberalism, free trade, good relations with other countries, are doing a lot to alienate themselves. Um, you know, Britain is still number five up there in terms of its passport, but let's see where the 
Brexit negotiations end up, where our kind of like free trade talks end up, and um, let's see where Britain is at the end of the at, at the end of the century. Mm. Um, luckily, I'm German, so I'm happy that I still have the second most powerful. <laughs> yeah, you've done very well. I think Germany was in number three position, and it, it's been bumped up a bit, so it's done very well. But that's an interesting point that uh, Nina has raised there about the United Kingdom and the United States, because there is this sense of keeping keeping the foreigner at bay immigration being a hot button issue and all, all of these these matters somehow keep staying in the world but at the same time not letting the world coming too much yes although i think this is a slightly different question because the uh, uh, the, the 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 element that was assessed there was um, um, a visa free access or very easy to obtain visa process which is slightly different from immigration policies because mm. that's the, the sort of like diplomatic agreements that you have with the receiving country mm. and it's not surprising that that places like japan germany um, singapore come very on the top of that list because these are countries that have been doing an incredible amount of international assistance and development programs of donkey's age uh, going back to the 60s, particularly in areas of the world that are very populated and full of lots of countries. Um, so here what we're talking about is, is, is someone using a metric that is very quantitative oriented, uh, right? Um, so, so in that regards, um, obviously, countries that are not politically controversial in regards to any type of stance, and that goes back to the question about uh, you know civil liberties uh, that that are being championed, and I'll come back to this point in a moment, particularly to the UK, um, obviously a country that has got less political package in that sense uh, and it has a traditional strong policy orientation towards aid and assistance and development, it doesn't strike me as a surprise that as a part of the diplomatic negotiations with any country, particularly receiving countries, um, has managed to cut out a bit of paperwork by having easier visa access uh, sort of ties. Now, that raises a bit of a problem with sort of countries that have strong position on certain international matters, UK being one of those, which sometimes puts you on the right side of the fence or the moral high ground, as it were. Other times, that high moral ground, you know, backfires. Um, so in, in that regards, there, there, there is obviously um, an interesting point to make now insofar as the UK are concerned, that fifth position actually says a lot about the power the UK still has in terms of maintaining a relatively high position, notwithstanding also having this higher moral ground on lots of complex issues. You know, the UK was leading on the Riongas uh, uh, matter at the UN uh, last year, gathering sort of a, a unanimous consensus or a large consensus in order to achieve something. Countries like Germany, you know, Japan were slightly more on the mm-hmm. sidelines of that. So so at the moment it seems to me that what is interesting about the United Kingdom is that it's still in a relatively high position given the fact that it's quite active on all sorts of issues, not just the sort of issues that allow you to more easily negotiate visa uh, sort of agreements. That being said, the point of Brexit is very valid and we shall see how things sort of uh, change because it will become harder for the United Kingdom to make choices in this regard. Nina, your response to that? Yeah, and uh, I think that, you know, let's not forget that one of the main ways in which you ensure there is visa liberalization is through trade deals and international agreements. And this is something traditionally that the EU has negotiated as a block for its member states, Mm. even though, you know, some of the newer member states are subject to different kind of visa regimes. So the fact that European countries have done well and 
you know, deem perform highly in this index is also indicative of their block negotiating power. Mm. Um, it will be interesting to see once the UK is out. And let's not forget that I think it's diplomatic relevance, its soft power is diminishing mm. at an incredible rate, how that continues to develop as we yeah. go ahead. Because that Brexit narrative, or one of, certainly part of the case for leaving Europe, is that as a single country, mm-hmm. un, unshackled, so to speak, from the other EU members, that um, the world will be knocking on the door and it'll be easier to have deals on your own right, on your own basis. Um, I, I think the key issue is how lasting the damaging effect of the last couple of months of shambolic behaviour in Parliament will be. Mm. And once the deal is done, if there's any sort of deal that is somehow making everybody kind of sort of happy one way or another, um, how long it will take for whatever has happened in the last couple of months to actually mm. sort of wither away? That will be an indicating uh, point to watch out. You know, um, the interesting thing about news media cycles is that they don't last very long these days. So even though at the moment UK is in a much more diminished position uh, from an international perspective, Let's wait and see in a few months' time if an agreement is achieved, uh, where we're going to be then. And where that's going to leave the ranking on the passport. So who knows, maybe we could go from number five to number four or perhaps in the opposite direction. Who knows? Anything's possible in this world. (laughs) Finally, New York City is poised to become the first city in America to introduce congestion pricing. Now, the details are still being ironed out, but once the scheme takes effect, motorists will have to pay toll fees to drive along the busiest stretches of Manhattan. Now, the proceeds from the charge will help officials who operate the city's public transit network to raise billions of dollars in bonds to modernise the city's antiquated subway. It's a very controversial issue when Mm. you're talking about congestion charging. It can get very emotional with some people, but the principle sounds quite good. But I guess the problem here is that, yes, if you live in the heart of Manhattan, you can afford to leave your car in the garage. But on the other hand, if you live outside and you have to drive in whether you like it or not, then it's going to be very expensive, isn't it? Mm. I think the thing with New York is that they have many other or good cities to look for in terms of how they can make this work for the city. I think the general, uh, if the general aim is to ensure that people use public transport, um, use less private cars, you know, which is going to become inevitable because the way that we travel around our cities is no longer environmentally sustainable. There has to be some kind of push on behavioural change. But I guess it, if, the, if the push is on those, well, yeah, the poorest members of the public who may need to drive and that somehow makes it feel inherently <laughs> it unfair. it that isn't what the case of London has shown. I mean, the case of London has shown that the introduction of the congestion charge was a success by many measures. but And the money that was raised was obviously hugely important for TfL in order mm. to invest in public mm. infrastructure and to make sure that public transit worked for people who need to get around the city. But, of course, what is changing is that the way that we go around our cities is changing and what's in particular in the case of London, is that private hire cars mm. are not in the... Conge- they don't have to pay the congestion charge. Yeah, but then that's that's a lifestyle thing as well, isn't it? The, the it presence is. of more of these the, these delivery vans, etc. on the road. So I was about to say, because having lived in New York uh, for a fairly decent period of time, I would say, first of all, public transport is absolutely shocking 
for a civilized place is absolutely shocking. So anything they do in order to modernize that is, is going to be always too little, too mm. late. So the fact that he's thinking about using money, um, and, and I think your point is absolutely, is absolutely correct in the sense that, you know, look at what he's done to the TFL, TFL in London. I mean, if they were to do a fraction of that and achieve that with the uh, underground transportation in, in, in New York, then things would mm. be so much better. And just to explain, TFL is Transport for London. So this yes, is the indeed, body yeah. responsible the body, the for responsible. running the, 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 under, the underground and the buses. Precisely. On top of that, I think the other point about the changing behaviour, New York, if, if anything, is already very different in terms of behaviour. I think there is, there, there is a question there insofar as uh, who is the audience, who is the target of this congestion charge. In New York, in central New York, uh, nobody really uses a car except the private companies and sort of uh, 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 private hire, car hire, which is also a very, very successful system. And Uber started there mm. and with it a long, a long a, a, a network, a web of other companies similar to that. And coming from the outside, whether you're coming from Jersey or whether you're coming from other parts of sort of like uh, Manhattan, Brooklyn or, or other areas, the transportation system, you know what the times are. You wouldn't dare taking the car because it's going to take forever. So it seems to me that it, they, this is a targeted thing for a particular type of audience that can afford to pay a congestion mm. charge and congestion charge and therefore try to help sure. improving the transportation system. For the life of me, I can't remember when was last time when I was in New York, anyone saying like, hey, let's go out, let's take my car. Nobody would do that, <laughs> really. So, so you know, this is very, very interesting, this point. A final point to you, Nina. Yeah, so I think that if you kind of hit the private hire companies, you know, the big, you know, companies like Uber, who are obviously making... Um, Shed loads of money. Well, they're reinvesting everything, so they're not actually making any profit. But, you know, incredibly powerful companies who Mm. should contribute to the infrastructure of cities. Okay, a sound note on which to finish that discussion, because we have reached the end of today's show. Alessio Patalano and Nina Schick, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Daniel Bach, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick. Our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next than at 1900 hours. It is Monocle on Design. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily. That's at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That is 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye. <laughs>